if you can grab your Bibles as you make your way back to your seats, that would be wonderful. What? It, nobody's listening to me. Of course not. Of course not. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, apparently nobody wanted to sit on this side of the room here today. It's always kind of funny when that happens like that, when one side just empties out. Um, so anyways, if you've got your Bibles, grab them and head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are going to be wrapping up the book of 1 Corinthians here this morning together and going to be looking at the remaining instructions that Paul has for this church in Corinth and the believers there. And this, this chapter is one of those, like most of Paul's letters, that ends with uh, what are called either final instructions or greetings. And you and I in our Bibles have the benefit of little headings that show up. Paul didn't write the letter and put those headings in, by the way. They were added later, um, as the chapters were, as the verses were. All of that just serves the purpose of helping you and I navigate our Bibles a little bit more easily so that we can say things like turn to 1 Corinthians 16 and you know exactly where to go. And so those headings in there serve the same type of purpose for us. They just help us. Um, but what Paul has to say is an opportunity then and we find ourselves just reminded once again that this is a letter written by somebody to someone. These people existed. These people had a relationship with one another. These people cared about each other. Paul, earlier in the letter, had said, I'm like a father to you. And so if you ever have received a letter from a dad, or maybe you're a dad and you've written a letter to your kids, and there's a certain level of emotion that goes in to that, or a certain level of passion that goes into that, and he's had some really hard things to say, and there was some behaviors that needed to be corrected, and one of the things that we get reminded of, just as we come to the end, is this is just this is a real guy writing this letter, and he's writing to real people who lived at a certain period of time, they lived in a certain place. They had certain customs, they were a part of a culture, they were not only Greeks, but they were also Romans because they were a colony. I mean, they, there was a lot going on, and chapter 16 gives us a little bit of a window into some of what Paul is doing in his life, some of the final things that he wants them to know, perhaps the final questions of theirs that he's answering. We get the words now concerning two different times in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians those words serve to show us that he's transitioning topics but can also function to say hey I'm answering a question that you've asked about and we have that show up twice more here. But there's just a kind of a, a variety, maybe a smattering of things that chapter 16 contains in it. And we're going to just aim to work ourselves through it, try to make sense of it. But we catch, like I said, that reminder that these are real people living at a real point in time, writing a real letter. And there is 
just some good interpersonal things contained in there that I think will just be good for us to be reminded of. So let's pray before we go any further, and then we'll hop in and uh, aim to cover all of 16 here together this morning. Well, God, we thank you that we find ourselves here on the 53rd Sunday of the year. And with the opportunity to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus and because of what he has done. And we do so with the desire to be more like him. And so God, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand it. We ask that you would teach us from it. And that you would change us through it. God, we just ask that you'd be special and give us your grace in a special way here in these next several moments as we read what it is that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. God, we thank you that you have done just that, and that this letter was not just for these believers in Corinth some 2,000 years ago, but it is also for us. So help us to understand it, we pray. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we were to outline chapter 16, here's the four kind of major movements that I think we're going to see throughout the chapter. Paul begins with some instructions for giving. He then gives them an apostolic or a ministry update. He then gives them some instructions for living. And then the final category, you might say, sounds like something you might hear on Jeopardy, greeting, kissing, cursing, waiting, and loving. And so we'll try to navigate our way through that for 800, please. And uh, as we begin in the instructions for giving, go to verse 1 there. Paul, again, with the words now concerning, is indicating that either he's answering a question they had asked or he's shifting topics. Uh, Both might be true. We don't have the Corinthians letter to Paul. Um, But the topic certainly is shifting from death and resurrection to now money. And he says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, As I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul begins giving them some instructions for giving. So year-end giving, giving on Sundays, all of those things were not just new things the churches came up with. They were things that from the very beginning the church was doing. If we would go to Acts chapter 2, right after 3,000 men surrendered their lives to Jesus and were baptized, not including women and children that 
most likely did so as well. One of the very first things that we see is the apostles teaching and those who were a part of this newly created church living together and sharing together. And that further develops through Acts chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 where it almost crescendos with this idea that they were surrendering all of the material goods they had and just giving to one another. That part of the very DNA of believing in Jesus and trusting him and being a part of a local body is this responsibility, is this privilege, is this opportunity to invest and give back to God. And Paul gives them some instructions for what to do there. And his instructions, I think, they break down into four different areas. They were to make a plan, they were to prepare, they were to give, and then they were to engage and to trust. Let's think through the first one, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. We can see that Paul wants them to have a plan. They're to make a plan for what this is to be like. They're not to wait till December 29th and go, holy smokes, I haven't done anything this year. I really hope that online giving thing works. I'm just going to give it all in one shot. They were were to have a plan. And that plan was to be something that they prepared for. Part of their plan, he tells them, was on the first day of the week. There was a principle there. And this is what I want us to make sure that we highlight as we think about the instructions for giving. I think it's the principle we need to dial in on, not the specifics. And so by that I mean, if you choose to give on a Tuesday, I don't think Jesus is dishonored by that. So Paul does say the first day of the week. The principle, though, is that there's a plan and there's preparations. Not perhaps the fact that it has to happen on Sunday. If some of you give uh, through EFT and electronically, it it happens on any old day of the week. Because it happens more by the date, not even per se the day. But there's a plan. So let's not get bound up in the details of, oh my goodness, my gift has to be given on a Sunday. I think we could err there, but let's think through the fact that Paul's instructions for them was they were to make a plan and they were to be prepared. The plan on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. You can see preparation being instructed in regards to and with the command to store it up. That word or those words, store it up, means to keep a material thing safe. I imagined this past week just kind of what that scene would look like. Not that I've ever lived in first century Corinth, but they don't have banks the way we do. They don't have wallets, perhaps, the way we do. They don't have accounts. All those things are certainly different and uh, unique between their culture and our culture. But they might have had a jar. And it might have been on Sundays, Paul's instructions was to put your gift in the jar. We'd use the language today, you earmark it. We'd even use the language, you budget for it. It's just as part of what you do. And it gets taken off and it gets set aside and it's kept safe. So for them, it might have been taking their, their, their coin and putting it in their jar 
and preparations were to be made. I also want you to dial into his comment that it was to be as each one prospered. Again, this serves as a pretty, pretty helpful reminder to us that it's generosity that the Lord's after, not specific amounts. And so the gift they were to make a plan for and prepare for and store up by setting aside was to be proportionate to their prosperity. And so if somebody had a really, really lucrative job, there should have been a little bit more planned for and set aside. If somebody found themselves in some financial struggles, there might have been a little less planned for and set aside. The idea here is not that the Lord requires a specific dollar amount from every one of us. In some ways, that might be too easy. And it might actually take us away from the fact that giving's a heart issue. Because God wants us to spend time with Him, figuring out how much of our income we're to invest back to Him. I try to work real hard at not using the word tithe, in part because there's no New Testament command that we're supposed to tithe. That was an Old Testament command. We're no longer bound by the Old Testament commands. That's why I don't want your moldy shower curtains to be sent to me any longer. We're no longer bound by those. We're no longer bound by tithing. What we're bound by, though, is the command to be generous. What we're bound by is the command to have a plan and make the preparations needed to be consistently, faithfully generous. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, is going to return to the idea of giving. And he's going to give some, them some correction and instruction. And I think... If we were to go there, which we won't, but if we were to go there, we could see and detect a little bit of a hint that they didn't do this real well. And he gets after them a little bit for their lack of actually setting these things aside. But it takes planning. It takes preparation. Now there's some tools that are available to help that. Carrie and I, a couple years ago, we shifted over to the EFT giving that our church has available. And that actually helped us get a whole lot more consistent with the storing up part. Because we had a plan, we just weren't great on the preparation part of it. And so we'd get to the end of the month or the end of a couple months and go, Oh, did, we, did you write the check? Did I write the check? Did we do that? And the online giving helped smooth all of that out for us. Some of those tools are available. They're certainly not requirements, but they're tools. They're tools to be used for planning, for preparing, for giving. I think it's really interesting that Paul writes that they're to plan, they're to prepare, and they're to give so that, or for the purpose, tail end of verse 2, there will be no collecting when I come. I take that to mean that there was going to be no scramble when Paul rode into town. That the people were going to go, well, got my pop. Here you go. It's what I've been setting aside for the last X number of weeks or years. I mean, we're not sure when he was going to come back. 
or whom he was going to send or whom they were going to send. These, these things are a little different in the first century. And you get a hint of that in these verses. They didn't want there to be a scramble because there was to be planning and preparation. This was to be a priority for them. It was to be something that was just a part of their daily lives. That on the first day of the week, this is just what we did. We set it aside so that whenever Paul comes, we're ready. There's no need for a collection because we've already got it right here. The last thing I think we can see that's pretty significant is that they were to engage and to trust. Look at verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. That word accredit there is the word that means to test and approve. They were to be engaged. And they were also to trust. And they were to do both of these. And I think those are two important principles for you and I today as well. You're to be engaged in the church's finances. And you're to be trusting. We're, and I'll speak on behalf of the leaders, supposed to show ourselves as trustworthy. So there's this relationship that we have. Part of our demonstration of trustworthiness includes monthly summaries put in your boxes regarding what has been given and spent. We've got bulletin updates each week regarding those things. Here in a couple weeks in the month of January, the audit team will get together and they're going to take a look at everything to make sure that the processes we have in place are followed correctly and that David did the right thing when signing the checks and Joyce did the right thing when filling out the check request form and I did the right thing when making sure the account numbers were the right way. I mean, all of this is built into how we approach these things because they matter. They matter. And you don't have to look real far or real hard to figure out that churches get caught up in mishandling money, and it can be devastating. And so we work hard to make sure that this is not an area that we're going to just let happen, but an area we're going to give a lot of direct oversight to, because it's important. And it's important there's the right checks and balances. And it's important that this idea of engagement and trust is something that we have here. Part of that's the reason why we, we're going to have a business meeting right here at the end of the service. Because we want you engaged. We want you engaged. We want to show ourselves as trustworthy. And we want to give you reason to trust us. So that you can feel like you've tested and can give your approval. Those things are really important. They were really important enough for Paul to give the Corinthian church those instructions. They're just as important for us today. And so we want to try and make sure that that relationship between you who gives gifts and those who have the responsibility to oversee them and the authority to spend that money, that that's a relationship that's trustworthy 
and that you have the opportunity to engage in. These things are really, really important. Let me just say this and we'll transition into Paul's apostolic ministry update. Yesterday I got a gift card or a check card I should say for Phil and Sarah um, and we're getting just ready for them to come next week and join us and we want to give them that gift. And um, So it doesn't include any gifts that were given today um, and it doesn't include anything that you might have just decided to do personally. Um, but I was just just so proud of you uh, because the check card that I got yesterday for them was for $385, um, which is just awesome. And we're going to be able to give that to them next week. And uh, the, way, the reason I did a check card and not several gift cards was as Joyce and I were just chatting about it, it just seemed like it was an easier way um, to just get them like a Visa gift card that they could spend anywhere. So it could be gas, it could be food, it could be all those things. But then wherever they go, I think Visa is accepted, or at least that's what the commercials tell us. Um, so, 385 bucks. that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. And it may not even be the total amount. I don't know if anything was given today, or if any of you have done anything on your own. Um, but that's really cool. And so we're going to have that for them next week and be able to give that to them. I plan to do it after he's done preaching. Um, it's just a way to kind of wrap up that part of their morning here with us. But well done. You should be really, really proud of that in, in a good way. Um, because I think we get an opportunity to love them well. And that's just really, really cool. Um, so these instructions for giving. You and I are to have a plan. We're to make preparations. We're to give our gift. And we're to be engaged in the process and trusting of those who have responsibility. And I'll add that those who have responsibility should be working hard to demonstrate and show themselves as trustworthy. Paul gives an apostolic or a ministry update that really is comprised of, of kind of three different parts. His own travel plans, some things about Timothy and some things about Apollos. And there in verse 5 he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. In Paul's ministry update, he's sharing some of his personal travel plans. And the thing that's really interesting here is that Paul wants the Corinthians to know what's going on. He wants them to know some things. It's going to actually be a little similar uh, to what Phil and Sarah will do next week when they're with us. When they're, hey, we're traveling to these churches, and then we plan to go back to China there, and we plan to resume the house church, and here's the things that are happening. It's just an update. Um, but if we, again, would go to 2 Corinthians, which we won't, but if we did, there in the beginning of chapter 1 into chapter 2, Paul actually defends himself because these travel plans were used by his opponents to discredit him. And if you would 
read through there, what begins to emerge is pretty clear is that the, the individuals around in Corinth, perhaps the ones that were claiming to be super special spiritual gift people, that you begin to get a hint of in chapter 12 where he's talking about and giving a litmus test regarding who's to be given the time of day and who's actually speaking from the Spirit and by the Spirit and who's not. And you can begin to see the seeds of some unrest are at work. Well, by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, that's in full bloom. And these false apostles, which he calls them to be, take aim at the fact that Paul shared these travel plans and they never came to fruition. Essentially, what they were saying was, didn't that guy write to you and say that he was going to come? And then he didn't come. See, he's a liar. You can't trust anything that he says. And Paul defends himself. And then in chapter 11 and chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he not only further defends his own ministry, he takes issue with these false apostles and just gives some of the strongest language of warning that we have regarding these false teachers and false teachers in general. And he says, look, they, they, they are servants of righteousness. That's what they look like. But don't be surprised by that because the one whom they're serving, Satan, he masquerades himself as an angel of light. Some significant, significant things said here. But it kind of all began right here. At the tail end of 1 Corinthians where Paul tells them, I want to come back. But by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, he hadn't come back. And these opponents, these false teachers, these false apostles had seized on that and said, look, the man's a liar. You can't, under, you can't trust anything he has to say. He has a few things to say about Timothy. Verse 10, you'll see there, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. If you read and look at Paul's letters, you get the sense that Timothy was a bit of a timid man. Perhaps not one that had a lot of self-confidence. Paul writes to Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy and tells him, don't, look any, don't let anyone look on you because you're young. Don't let anyone despise you for your age, but set an example by the way that you conduct yourself and your teaching. By the time 2 Timothy rolls around, there's even more opposition from false teachers there in Ephesus where Timothy was a pastor and Paul tells him look be strengthened by the gospel there's a recognition that Timothy struggled with being strong standing certainly not a struggle that's foreign to any of us but it seems to be perhaps a little bit more unique to Timothy and that he might have just been someone who struggled with his disposition might have been a bit of a timid soul. And here the church has given instructions to not let anyone despise Timothy, but to strengthen him. 
They're to love him well by encouraging him because he's doing the work of the Lord. Paul gives some instructions regarding Apollos or an update. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has an opportunity. Apollos has been all over this book. He showed up in chapter 1 where we learn that some of the, the disconnect between the believers there in the church of Corinth was that some wanted to say, I follow Apollos. He's my guy. And some said, I follow Peter. He's my guy. And some said, well, I follow Paul. He's my guy. And some really super spiritual person in the back is like, I just follow Jesus. And yet they found themselves with a lot of disconnect and dissonance relationally because they chose to align themselves with human leaders. In chapter 3, Paul writes about how he and Apollos, although they had different roles, were actually trying to accomplish the same task. And the credit for the work wasn't to actually go to them, either one of them. I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. So neither I who plant nor he who watered is worth anything, but only God who gives the growth. Hey, Corinthians, put your gaze up. If you're thinking a lot like Corinthians, you need to think a little bit more like Christians. But Apollos was somebody they knew. Apollos was somebody who had poured his life into them. Apollos was somebody who wanted to return as well and will come when he has the opportunity to. Paul then shifts to give them some instructions for living. And those instructions are guided and really, really outlined by these six different verbs and commands that he gives them. So look at verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. There's the first five of them that we are given, or that Paul gives to the Corinthians. The word watchful means to be constantly ready and alert. And in summarizing the end of all of what he has said, he tells them, Be alert, be watchful, be constantly ready. And he writes this verb in such a way that this is something that they are to do and continually do. They're to stand firm in the faith. They're to be firmly committed in the gospel. The life, death, burial, resurrection, and return. Of Jesus. Everything Paul had just written about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They're to stand firm. They're to hold fast. Act like men. The idea there is to conduct oneself in a courageous way. And that word that we get translated here, act like men, actually shows up in the book of Joshua in the beginning several times where Joshua says, or at least it's written, be strong and courageous. Be very strong and courageous. 
Now, Paul's not only speaking to the men here, he's also speaking to the ladies. And ladies, I don't think he's telling you to act like men. He's telling you to be strong and courageous. But this word gets translated that way because that's the way it was written. And there was an idea, very, I mean, it was, it was just what they did, where the military was comprised of men. And this word, act like men, that gets translated and that Paul used has the word man built right into it. But the idea is to be strong and courageous. In the midst of opposition, stand firm. Be courageous. There he writes just after that, be strong. But he writes this word in such a way that he's telling them to receive strength one of those divine passives that he's used a lot throughout this book. They're to receive strength. They're to receive strength from the only one capable of giving strength. They're to receive strength from God himself. They're to be watchful. That's something they're to do. They're to stand firm. That's something they're to do. They're to be courageous or act like men. That's something they're to do. They're to be strong, and that's something they're to receive. And to receive strength from the Lord is to acknowledge to Him that you need His strength. Paul talks a lot in 2 Corinthians about how God's strength was made perfect in His weakness. We don't like weakness. Some of us like it less than others. But I don't think any of us like weakness. But it's in our weaknesses that God's strength is able to shine through. And when we're weak, He's strong. And we're to be strong by receiving strength. And by receiving strength from God. We're to do all that we do in love. That idea there is just to conduct yourself. So the word love there would certainly be defined by what Paul wrote in chapter 13. Which we had put together this fun little handout for you. As a way to remind yourself. Our actions. Our attitudes. Our interactions, our words, are to be characterized and defined by this idea of love that's patient and kind, and does not envy and does not boast and is not rude or selfish and is not easily angered and remembers no wrongs and never stops trusting, never loses hope, never gives up, never quits and never fails. All that we do, let all that you do, be done in love. The sixth verb we see show up in verse 15 and following. And it's the idea of submitting to one another. Paul writes, now I urge you brothers or brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. They refreshed my spirit as well yours. Give recognition to such men. There you see in verse 16 the command to be subject. That's the word that has shown up through 1 Corinthians. The word gets translated submit. The word that we don't particularly like as well. If we don't like weakness, we definitely don't like surrender and submitting. But that's what we're called to. This is the idea of mutual submission here. It's the idea of letting all that we do be done in love. It's letting, as Paul said in chapter 10, verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It's what he says again in verse 31 of chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. See, the idea here, and really this brings us right back to the whole idea of being better together, that we need one another, and for that to work, we have to consider each other more important than we consider ourselves got to think that my needs matter less than your needs. This is what Paul says the secret to marriage is in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. It's what he says the secret to a healthy church is. And the fact that they were discording with one another and fighting and having arguments and, and when weird communions where people were eating and some were dying and everybody was not getting along. It was because they weren't submitting to one another. They weren't considering each other more important than themselves. And this is at the heart of the gospel and who Jesus is. Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, Do not look at your own interests only, but also the interests of others. Be like Jesus. Who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient even unto death. Jesus himself said, I came, the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. There's to be a mutual submission to one another. We're to consider each other's needs more important than our own. The last category we see here is greeting, kissing, cursing, waiting, and loving. And maybe if we're lucky, we'll catch a daily double along the way. But go to verse 18, excuse me, 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. There was a church, several of them, apparently in Asia. They send their greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. 
That word Prisca, that name Prisca, I should say, it's probably a nickname or a shorthand name for Priscilla. The word Prisca, Priscilla, shows up six different times in the New Testament, three times written by Luke, three times written by Paul. Every time Paul writes the name, he says Prisca. Every time Luke writes the name, he says Priscilla. But all six of the times, Aquila shows up right alongside. Seems to be some type of shorthand or nickname. Perhaps it could be as simple as the difference between Timothy and Tim. But this was a woman who was well known in the early church. This was a woman alongside of her husband who pulled Apollos aside in Acts chapter 18 and taught him more accurately the things about Jesus. This was a woman who was important, her husband as well. They had a church in their house and they send their greetings, as do all the brothers and sisters. And Paul then commands them to greet one another with a holy kiss. It's one of the one another's, one of two one another's that show up in the scriptures that involve kissing. And I think it's, well, I'm just going to say, it's a culturally appropriate way of showing affection. If that sounds like a creative way to say we shouldn't all kiss each other after the service, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um... But there was a level of affection to be exchanged with these believers and between them. And in this culture, that wasn't out of step. A little different for our culture. Perhaps a side hug, a fist bump, maybe a high five. There's culturally appropriate ways for us to show affection. And that's what he's communicating. He writes that there is a curse to be found... Some challenging words, no doubt. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. It's the same word Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, about those who were saying that Jesus was accursed. We don't have a lot of information. We don't know the total backstory here of what's going on and why Paul would have this strong of a condemnation to give, but it could be that the people from chapter 12 who were running around claiming to be super spiritual but denying Jesus were the very people Paul says have no love for him and they themselves are to be accursed. Strong words, certainly. Perhaps strong words in response to strong actions in a communication of unbelief. And not just unbelief in the sense that I'm, I'm wondering what to believe or I'm searching, but unbelief in the sense of hostility towards even the person of Jesus. Waiting, there you see Paul write, come Lord Jesus. That's the word we use in our English as Maranatha. It's exactly what he wrote. The Maranatha Brethren Church, one of our Grace Brother and Sister Churches down in Hagerstown. That's just what the name means. It means come Lord Jesus. It's what the Apostle John writes in Revelation 22 at the very end of his letter. 
Paul says, look, we, we, we're awaiting the return of Christ. And we're asking him to come back. And he ends with loving. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. I think the fact that Paul ends with love is significant. Because he's had a lot of hard things to say. He's had a lot of hard things to say. And yet he has said those things because of his affection for them and his care for them, his love for them. Love that has been expressed such as the love that a father would have for children. And sometimes dad's got to say some hard things. But Paul ends with love. Because he wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's for them. And despite the hard things that he has had to say. Despite the difficult things that they have done. And the, the bonehead decisions that they have made along the way. He cares about them. He wants to come back and visit them. He'll end up writing to them at least a second time. With a whole lot more instruction for them. But he loves them. He wants what's best for them. And so to summarize all of it, maybe to draw it all to an end, I will quote the words of a very, very famous individual, Porky Pig. That's all, folks. Let's pray. God, we certainly don't want to take your word for granted or make light of it. You inspired the Apostle Paul to write to these believers in Corinth and you preserved that letter for us to read and to study and to learn from here and now. And God, I pray that you would help us to be people that honestly believe we're better together. And that would be people, that we would be people that would be watchful. That we would stand firm in the faith, that we would be courageous, that we would be strong. And that we would let all that we do be done in love. God, I admit there's tension there. There's, there's, there's tension for us when we think about being people of conviction, being people who stand for what you have said, who stand for what is right, but wanting to also be people who do it with humble spirits and love. And so God, would you work in us that those things may be true of us. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.